Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio show, Conversations on New Jersey Education, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings the state leaders to you, and I hope that you all feel free to join in the conversation. My name is Ray Penny, and I will be your host this morning. A couple of ground rules. First, we will not be using the chat room feature of the, on the show today. And if you are interested in calling in, a few things you should know. You, to call in, you dial 1-347-989-8904. And when you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press the number 1, and that will indicate on in my switchboard that you're ready to ask a question. I have someone who will be screening calls. Her name is Anne-Marie, and she will get your name and the topic that you want to discuss. Also, if you're on the phone line, turn the volume down on your computer and only listen on the phone since there's a delay. Finally, I will not be taking callers right away but will in about 20 minutes or so. So be patient. Uh, I'm really excited about today's show. In New Jersey, it seems that the education reform movement is in full swing, and we are talking about almost every aspect of education from school choice to teacher tenure. To many of us in public education, this reform movement seems to have happened overnight, mostly occurring with the election of Chris Christie as governor. But this movement, as our guest uh, today will let us know, uh, is nationwide incurring in almost every state. Issues such as testing, choice, teacher evaluations, and tenure are popping up in every state. The rapidity of the issues, I feel, has caught most of us off guard. And not only that, it seems that the political party affiliations matter less than they have in the past. It is a world where Democrat Barack Obama and Republican Chris Christie can find common ground. I feel very fortunate this morning to have Dr. Diane Ravage with us. Just about a year ago, she published a book entitled The Death and Life of the Great American School System, and uh, I read her book, and which is why I called to have her on this show. And I think it's a must-read for everyone in public education. And I would tell you to go out and buy the book now uh, online. It's very easy. Um, and before I introduce Dr. Ravitch, I, I like to—I think what she can bring to the table is that many of us in the education community are like we came into a movie theater, and the movie's halfway over, and we're trying to figure out the plot to the movie and who's—it's a mystery movie, and we can't figure it out. I think Dr. Ravitch, since she's an educational historian, can, in this book helps lays out the plot and the players so that you have a better feel for what's going on. Uh, Dr. Ravitch, I'd like to welcome you to uh, Conversations in New Jersey. Well, great. Thank you for inviting me. Um, there are so many parts of your book that I wanted to go through, but when I mentioned to someone that your book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System, someone said to me, isn't that where Diane Ravitch does a 180-degree turn? Now, after I read your book, you might argue it's a 360-degree turn and that you came back to where you started. Am I correct in that? or? Well, you know, I think it's really just an example of what I would call critical thinking. Uh, if, if we go through life uh, laying down our marker, let's say at the age of 22 or 25 or even 30, and then never, ever changing our mind, uh, well, it makes that makes for a very uninteresting life and an un, uninteresting conversation because you can predict whatever that person thinks or says. Uh, I, I would like to say that uh, I don't think I made either a 180 or a 360. Uh, what, I've, what I've always believed in, what I've always uh, contended from my study of history as well as my engagement in current issues 
is that uh, I would like to see all children get a great education. Uh, there was a time during, uh, right after I had worked in the first Bush administration when I argued on behalf of testing and also on behalf of choice and accountability, and I saw those as strategies. I saw them as strategies and believed that competition and uh, making, putting it, everything out there for the public to see in terms of, of gains and test scores would encourage better education. I began to realize several years ago that things were not working out that way. I, I think I was speaking on the grounds of hope, uh, but I've seen that the hope I had and the belief I had in those ideas were dashed. Uh, so you might say, yeah, I'm back to where I always was in the sense that I still believe that every child should get a great education. Uh, where I've changed my mind and what I, do <clears throat> what I document in the book is that uh, accountability, excuse me, I have to cough, <clears throat> that accountability and choice are not going to lead us towards a better education. The, the combination of the two turns out to be toxic, uh, that the more we rely on test scores to punish and reward schools, uh, the more we incentivize the very, very activities, the cheating, teaching to the test, uh, comparing kids solely by their scores on basic skills tests, these undermine education. That's the whole, I guess, the point of my book is that we're now creating uh, lots of competition to public education, um, a lot of privatization. They, too, are incentivized to get higher and higher test scores, and they will get them by any means necessary, uh, the irony being that, in fact, they haven't gotten those high test scores. Um, and uh, all we've managed to do this past year, these, this past decade, really, uh, is to put in place political structures that have immense political power and money behind them but are terrible for education and terrible for kids. Um, there, there's so many aspects that you, you touch on a little bit of everything, but uh, one of the things, and you kind of end the book, towards the end of the book, you talk about the role of foundations in this, mm -hmm. before I get into each specific issue, because that's something that's playing out in New Jersey now. Uh, I'm not sure if you are aware, but uh, in Newark, uh, there was some speculation about an educational plan, and it was found out that it was done by a, a foundation, sponsored by a foundation, and our acting commissioner has a, a, right. a I, consultant I I've, I've been reading. I've been reading the news. I'm not there, but I'm not very far away, and I read the news from New Jersey. And uh, what I warn about in my chapter ten, it's called the Billionaire Boys Club. It's that uh, they're a group of incredibly well, the wealthiest foundations in, in the education sphere: the Gates Foundation, the Eli Broad Foundation, the Walton Foundation, and I could go on and list several others, but those are the three big ones. Uh, these are very rich uh, people who know almost nothing about education and have adopted it as the hobby of the moment and they are are placing their bets on certain strategies particularly testing uh judging teachers by test scores uh and charter schools and vouchers and this is these are the strategies they've been promoting they have been incredibly successful so far because they also happen to be uh, uh part of a world of very wealthy people who make contributions to political campaigns and so you see for example uh, the Wall Street hedge fund managers jumping feet first into the charter school promotion business. Uh, there's a group called Democrats for Education Reform. There's another group called Education Reform Now. Uh, you may have seen of a group called Stand for Children. There's mm -hmm. another uh, that always ends in the word can, like there may be a New Jersey can by now. They're, they aim to be a 50-state organization. But they all support the same goals. They're all supported heavily by Wall Street 
there's a lot of Wall Street money invested in this particular vision of school reform. And uh, it's it's a fascinating social phenomenon, and I'd be willing to bet that very few of the people involved in promoting this have their own children in the, in the kinds of schools that they're creating. So um, when I first read your book, I, I said you almost would consider them – there was a movie that just came out called The, the Adjustment Bureau, and I said that the foundations are like the Adjustment Bureau, keeping education policy – going in a certain direction. I think you used the word they've captured the education policy discussion. Is that your big concern too? Oh, yeah. What what concerns me in particular is the Gates Foundation because they are the biggest, the most powerful. Um, others follow their lead. The Broad Foundation, which I know has also been active in New Jersey, and I believe they're the ones who put up the money for uh, the study that uh, Chris Cerf was involved in. The Broad Foundation has been training urban superintendents. <clears throat> they have something called the, Super, uh, the Broad Superintendents Academy, and uh, they, they now have Broad superintendents uh, across the country in many urban districts. And they, I don't know what their curriculum is, but they, they seem to all do the same thing, and that is to close down public schools and replace them with uh, charter schools. Uh, there's a Broad-trained uh, emergency financial manager in Detroit, and he just yesterday announced that he was giving a pink slip to every single teacher in the city of Detroit, uh, and he has a plan to close down or, or to replace almost every public school in Detroit with the charter school, uh, although it's now perfectly obvious that the large numbers of charters in Detroit do not get better results by any measure uh, than the regular public schools. So instead of addressing whatever the specific needs are of the children, they're simply uh, rearranging the boxes and privatizing as much as possible. That seems to be the Broad method. And uh, given how active both Broad and Gates are, as well as uh, the boy billionaire Mark Zuckerberg, um, in, in terms of uh, capturing policy in, in New Jersey, uh, that's what's coming your way. Now, let's talk about charter schools. Uh, because I, I have to admit, I sometimes get confused. It seems that every group that puts out can find data to justify their opinion on whether charter schools are successful or not. Um, how do you judge how charter schools are doing? Well, you know, the the, uh, the coin of the realm is test scores. And I, I would wish we had a different coin of the realm because I think that there's far too much emphasis on testing. Uh, the tests that we've had used for many years are deeply flawed. Uh, and we're also creating a system of ranking and rating that uh, where we end up having a few winners at the top and, and having lots of other kids feel that their life has been blighted forever by not having good test scores. So I would rather not use test scores, but that's the indicator we have to work with. Uh, you have in New Jersey uh, a man named Bruce Baker at Rutgers who's done a number of studies of charters, charters in New Jersey, charters in New York, charters elsewhere. Uh, there have been now multiple studies of charters across the country and with very few exceptions, they all reach the same conclusion, and that is charters do not, on the whole, produce better test scores than regular public schools. Uh, you can always find the, uh, uh, the high-performing, high-flying charter school, uh, but you will find many more abysmal, low-flying charter schools at the other extreme. Most of them do no better. Uh, the other thing that characterizes charter schools is that they uh, they select. Uh, they, when they have a lot lottery, uh, they're not getting a, a fair cross-section of the population. They're getting the most motivated students and families. And even after they have selected from those who apply, 
they have they, they end up with incredibly small proportions of the hardest to educate children. They don't have the same proportion of LEP children, the limited English proficient children. They don't have the same proportion of children with special needs. When they do have children with special needs, they're the children with the mildest disabilities. Uh, they leave the hard cases to the public schools. They leave the non-English speaking to the public schools. And when they talk of, boast about how many poor kids they enroll, they tend to have uh, large, larger numbers of children on reduced lunch and not the, not the uh, proportionate numbers of children who are on free lunch, who are the poorest of the poor. So they're, they're creaming, they're skimming, and then once they have a relatively selected population, they have the ability to kick kids out and send them back to the regular school or to hold them back from the testing because they don't expect they'll do well. So we should have a sector uh, in the charter world that gets absolutely spectacular results, but they don't. Despite all those advantages, uh, there's still this enormous variation uh, from the high flyers at one end to the uh, uh, bottom feeders at the other and there there are just um it's not it's not a reform it's just a way of privatizing education which probably goes back to the your your concern with the uh, foundations uh is that i think the tenor is that we want to run schools like businesses uh, yes uh, and, and, and what are some of the issues that you have with that well one of the big issue is that in in the business world uh, there's a belief that people are interchangeable, that if you know how to do marketing, you can market anything. Uh, if you can do sales, you can whether you're selling magazine subscriptions or, or soap or automobiles or, or cosmetics, it really doesn't matter. And so we see people in the business world move from one sector to the next uh, and do so seamlessly because uh, marketing is marketing. The problem is uh, that so many of the people who apply this business model think you can do the same thing in education and bring in people with no education background at all, uh, either to be teachers or to be principals or to be superintendents. And so we have, uh, for example, uh, Teach for America, which enrolls lots of very idealistic, very smart young people who agree to stay for two years. And uh, we have many districts where teachers, experienced teachers, are being laid off because they cost too much and the budget has to be cut. And then they bring in Teach for America, who are uh, bright and idealistic young people with five weeks of training. And a study after study has shown that they really don't do any better than other brand-new teachers. They aren't even compared to experienced teachers. But since they'll be gone in two to three years, it doesn't do anything to build the education profession. If anything, it tears it down. Um, similarly, we've seen with principals the development of uh, many principal leadership academies. Uh, this is modeled on New York City's leadership academy, which really has gotten very bad evaluations. But city after city, state after state, is uh, now has this idea that um, you could bring in people from business or from the corporate world or from uh, the military, uh, give them a year of training, and without uh, any experience as teachers or with a year or two of teaching experience, that's enough to be a principal. Well, it's not, and there's no evidence to show that that makes any sense, uh, but it gets worse. It gets worse because uh, school districts, in their desire to, to find that, that management expertise, uh, are recruiting non-educators to be superintendents. And the most spectacular current example uh, would be what happened in New York City, where Mayor Bloomberg, exercising the um, total control vested in him under mayoral control, brought in a publishing executive, uh, Kathleen Black, to be the superintendent of the nation's largest school district. And she lasted, I think, 95 days. Uh, 
it, it, to the point where, although he had defended her time and time again because she was a superstar manager, she had absolutely no capacity to run the school district. Uh, despite being surrounded by many deputies with, with long, many years of experience, she couldn't speak in public. She couldn't answer questions. She didn't know the issues. She, you know, it just w- went on and on to the point where she became an embarrassment to the mayor, and he replaced her. So, uh, it, it, what what I believe is happening with this current movement, and I call it the corporate reform movement to distinguish it from education reform, the corporate reform movement has. The other is deprofessionalization. Anyone can teach. Anyone can be a principal. Anyone can be a superintendent. Uh, little or no experience is required. Yeah, and I would, I would uh, tend to agree with you that. Uh, first of all, I don't know how you would be able to judge good teaching if you haven't taught or been in the classroom for some time as a principal. And that's one of the key jobs of a principal is training and observing teachers. Sure. Well, when you consider that we, we're we're now in a kind of a national obsession with the idea that American schools were overrun with bad teachers, and if we could just find and fire those bad teachers, we would then be number one in the world. Well, the whole idea is ridiculous, frankly. It's ridiculous on so many grounds that I'm not sure I have even the time in this interview to go into them. Uh, but it, but this is truly what every state now is, is uh, because of race to the top. And I have to say this has been unleashed by three different people and phenomena. One is Arnie Duncan, who believes this. Uh, and and so he put it into race at the top to create a new evaluation system because principals can't be trusted to make these judgments. Uh, and then waiting for Superman kind of makes this into a big public thing. Uh, American schools are overrun with bad teachers. We have to find them and fire them, and, and then we, we will become the best in the world. Uh, it's all, frankly, ridiculous. Uh, the, the person who makes the judgment about whether teachers are good and should be recognized as the best is the principal uh, and that principal has to be someone who has deep educational experience in order to make that judgment uh, the, per- the same person has to make a judgment uh, when he- when someone comes into the classroom and says I want to teach uh, not to say you're bad you're fired but I got to help you you need help let's make sure you work with this mentor let's make sure that this teacher is your cooperating teacher let's make sure that you get the help if you earnestly want to be a teacher and this is what you wanted all your life we're going to give you all the help you need to succeed and if if you've gotten all the help you need and you still can't succeed then we'll counsel you out but my job is not to fire you my job is to help you but that's not something that only an experienced principal can do and what the Gates Foundation is trying to do and what the race at the top legislative measures are trying to do is to develop a computer algorithm and say, let the legislature decide. This is nonsense. This is not only nonsense, it's stupid. (laughs) And don't hold back. Um, (laughs) Let me tell you what I really think. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One of the things, uh, in reading your book, you give examples of what happened in San Diego and in New York. And I work for a school board association and I took a, it looked like, uh, at least from my perspective, in the, some of those incidents that you brought up, that there's a concern that they don't like elected boards, They the control needs to be, I guess, more corporate, if we go back to that term, and that it would be under the mayor and a superintendent, and that would be pretty much the leadership model that is mm-hmm. espoused by many in the education reform movement. Sure. Well, the corporate reform movement, and you must remember never to refer to it as the education reform movement, because... None of this is about education reform. The education ideas uh, that are being espoused have no evidence behind them, 
and they're actually harmful to education. So it's important always to say the corporate reform movement. The corporate reform movement uh, works on the theory uh, that school boards are a hindrance and that they just get in the way and we should get rid of them. In fact, they work, it, they work in the theory that any kind of democratic participation is a nuisance. And so um, New York City would be a good example where the mayor makes all the decisions. He chooses the chancellor. The chancellor chooses the, all the uh, superintendents. Actually, the, almost all the superintendents have been eliminated. They now have corporate titles uh, like uh, chief talent officer or, or knowledge uh, executive. Or they, they're no more superintendents in, in reality. And what they've done is to create a model of accountability in which every school is theoretically autonomous and what that means is that every school will be judged by its test scores. If they go up, the principal's good and gets a bonus. Uh, if the scores go down, the principal's bad and might be in the school. Hmm. And so there's no the, the, the brilliance of the scheme is there's never any accountability at the top. If things go wrong in uh, one or in a hundred schools, it's not the fault of the, of the leadership. It's the fault of the people on the ground. So all all accountability gets devolved. Uh, to the school level, no accountability flows to the top. And um, the, uh, there's no need for a school board because uh, the mayor appoints every member of the school board. And when, when Mayor Bloomberg appointed the school board, he, I, he didn't get every member. He has eight out of 13. His eight always vote yes for, for whatever he wants. And on the one occasion when there were three of them who said that they weren't prepared to vote yes, he fired them. Uh, he fired his two and then got a borough president to fire his one. So he ended up sending the message clearly, if you want to serve on my school board, you always vote the way I tell you. Uh, this is mayoral control, which is one-man rule. Um, this one man happens not really to understand education issues much because he thinks everything can be determined by data. And um, it's it's really not a very successful model. Uh, I'm planning in the next few weeks to write an update to the book. It'll come out, I think, uh, sometime in the fall in a paperback version with the update. And the update will show that whereas New York City boasted for years about its dramatic score gains, all the score gains disappeared. They went up in smoke. Uh, the state education department brought in a uh, uh, an independent team uh, from, from Harvard, uh, Daniel Koretz, who's a very well-known testing expert. Uh, and his team went through the test and the testing procedure in New York State and discovered that uh, the state test scores were wildly inflated, and they all had to be deflated. And when they were deflated, all the New York City gains disappeared. So the miracle disappeared with it. And we have the governor, the uh, mayor has spent many extra billions of dollars, uh, a lot of it on no bid contracts and on. Um, uh, upgrading IT and bringing in, in more technology everywhere, uh, the goal being to eventually have fewer teachers and more computers. Uh, but despite the dramatic increase in spending, the budget has virtually doubled over the past uh, nine years of mayoral control. The, the test scores have been not flat, but they've gone about a, up at the same rate as other big districts. So there have been some gains, but no dramatic gains. And the New York City miracle went up in smoke. You know, uh, we're speaking with Dr. Diane Ravitch. Uh, if you want to call in and ask a question, one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four. The whole accountability uh, model does hinge on a standardized test, and in some classes, like math, music, uh, even 
part, you know, social studies is so varied. We don't have standardized tests for, at least state standardized tests for everything. So how do you build a model when you don't really have, the data is probably sketchy at best. Well, here's what's going to happen. It's going to get worse and worse because on the one hand, you can say, you know, we're only testing kids in grades three through eight. Uh, We don't have, in reading and math, we don't have longitudinal data on those who teach grade three, so we're really going to focus on on, uh, finding the bad teachers from grades four through eight in reading and math. Um, But here's where it's going to get worse. The corporate reform movement now wants to test everything in every grade. Uh, the superintendent in Charlotte Mecklenburg announced the other day that he wants to develop tests for kindergarten through 12th grade in every subject. Uh, the state of Florida has just recently passed legislation to test everything that's taught, even band, choir, music, physical education. There will be value-added growth methods, uh, measures in all of those. The uh, state of Colorado um, is testing everything. I just uh, the other day saw an article written by a young woman named Dana Goldstein, um, which was online, and where she talked about observing a first-grade art class where the children were given a multiple-choice test about uh, uh, deciphering the meaning of a painting by Picasso. Uh, you know, there's a point at which you have to say, this is totally insane, and you even uh, I remember reading your book uh, that you can have higher test scores and worse education. So uh, is that because schools and teachers will feel the pressure to just teach to the test, and the test may only be math or whatever it is? Yes, exactly. What will happen and what is happening uh, is we see kids uh, getting – we see the scores going up. Usually they're inflated as they were in New York, as they were in Chicago – and at the same time, the kids are no better prepared for college or for post-secondary opportunities of any kind. Uh, best example of that would be uh, New York City, which, uh, as I said, is boasted for years of the higher and higher scores. Our state superintendent said that you, to graduate, you had to pass five regents exams. Well, it used to be a badge of honor to, to pass the regents exams, but the regents exams got dumbed down from the moment that he said that every single graduate had to pass five of them. So we now have a New York City um, kids graduating high school, going on to a community college, and 75% of them pass the, the, the entry test for reading, writing, and math. Now, how could you have gone through a system that supposedly has no social promotion and, and pass five regents exams, and then you can't even pass the reading, writing, and math test for a two-year community college? These are not exactly... Harvard-type standards. This is a two-year community college. And I've been told by the remediation director at some of these colleges that the young people coming in from high school are worse prepared every year. They've gone through an entire lifetime of standardized testing where they've been prepared to take the test, where they've learned the test questions, where they've learned how to answer them, they've learned how to make the right guess, and they don't have a good education. Hmm. Let's get back to the role of the teacher, uh, because in New Jersey, we're looking at tenure reform. We're looking at how we evaluate teachers and time teachers to student achievement. And in many cases, that is the test. And in your book, and I loved it, uh, What Would Mrs. Ratcliffe Do? I, I, like you, probably like most people who went to education, I had a Mrs. Ratcliffe. Mine was Mrs. Strucco. And I always said, if, if they don't rate her as a great teacher, then it's not a good system. Um but how should we be evaluating teachers? 
Well, uh, we have to do it the hard way. The hard way is through having experienced evaluators, and that is experienced principals making a judgment. That means that they have to go into the classroom uh, with diligence. They have to uh, observe what's happening in the classroom. Uh, They have to observe the the kind of student work being produced there. Um, At a certain point when you've observed and you've decided that this this teacher uh, really has got it, I mean, if the teacher is struggling, you make sure that the teacher gets help and gets better. And you have to be involved in the process to make sure that he or she is actually getting help and see what progress they're making. And a teacher should not get tenure if they're a bad teacher. I mean, when you, when we talk about, as, as so, so many of the uh, political leaders do, the bad teachers who have tenure, who gave them tenure? They didn't tenure themselves. Uh, the union didn't give them tenure. Uh, the school board didn't give them tenure. Somebody gave them tenure, if they're even if they're bad teachers. So, of course, we should have no bad teachers. Uh, but my guess is we probably have no more bad teachers today than we did 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or 50 years ago. What we have is a misplaced faith and the power of standardized testing. Uh, all of these value-added systems that are being promoted uh, by Secretary Duncan and by uh, various uh, promo- you know, people who see this as the answer, all of these methods have uh, are deeply inaccurate. They're all unstable. There will be teachers who will be labeled effective who are not effective, and there will be teachers who will be labeled ineffective who are terrific teachers. Uh, so much of the label of effective or ineffective is dependent on uh, who's assigned to your classroom. Uh, if you're teaching able and, and curious and eager students, you may look like a genius teacher. Uh, if the next year you have a student with two, uh, a class with two or three disruptive kids in it and you can't do anything about it and you do your best, kids are, and the rest of the class is going to be dragged down. So I wouldn't rely on those measures. I think the measures themselves are unstable. The study after study has shown that they're unstable uh, and that teachers will look great one year and not so great the next, and it says nothing about the teacher. It simply goes to who's in his or her class, uh, and they're inaccurate. They, uh, uh, the, the best they can do, is, as I read the literature, is maybe say at the top 10%, this teacher gets gains year after year. But doesn't, don't you think a good principal already knows that? And at the bottom 10%, there are some teachers who, where kids never learn anything. And I would think that if the principal's any good, the principal knows that too. And we don't need to spend hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to design a system to tell us what we already ought to know. Uh, and also, at least from my experience as a parent, and, uh, and I, have had, I have two children now in high school, but I know that they sometimes have the same teacher and, and the same teacher can be very effective with one kid and not quite as effective with the other. And so is it how – and that, I guess that gets to the role of the principal, placing students with the right teacher. Well, partly, but I would say that, you know, the, the education, particularly schooling, education is larger than schooling, but schooling is um, involves several, pe- several different people who are involved with accountability. The first layer of accountability is the family because that's where it starts. If children arrive in school ready to learn, the odds are very strong that they will learn and that and that regardless of who their teacher is, they will learn because they're prepared to learn. Many children, and particularly the kids who do worst in school, arrive in school before they ever meet a te- ever meet a teacher, there is a huge achievement gap. They arrive in school not having the vocabulary or the knowledge or the behavioral skills and social skills to do well in school. And then somehow it's only the teacher that's responsible for something that happened before the child ever arrived in school. So 
parents have a huge role to play, and but they are not held accountable under today's schemes. Uh, the second part of the stool is the student himself or herself. Student has to do the work. Student has to show up every day. Student has to be willing. Student has to be motivated. If children don't come to school and don't learn the material, the teacher will be held accountable. This is this is nutty. Teacher, of course, does must do his or her part. But you know, it, to say that uh, uh, the uh, if we compare it to another field, uh, that the, you went to the dentist and then you nonetheless, despite your dentist's effort, you still got cavities. Hey, it's up to you to brush your teeth. So there, mm-hmm. there are many characters, many uh, actors here who should be held accountable, including the teacher, including the principal, including the school board, including the district leadership, uh, including the family, and including the student. But somehow the current dialogue is if we can just fire enough teachers, uh, things will get better. That is ridiculous. We're never going to improve our schools. You know, one of the things that I think you believe is really important and that is actually not being discussed is the curriculum that we teach our children. Uh, at least for me in your book, I think you feel that's an important ingredient in an education that is not being discussed. Why do you feel that's not being well, discussed? Well, because what's happened as a result of No Child Left Behind is that all focus has been on, only on basic skills because that's the only thing that counts. And many districts across the country have been narrowing their curriculum. They have been first thing that goes is the arts, which I believe is crucial. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a school and you don't have the arts, you don't really have a school. Uh, you have there have children have to have a reason to want to come to school, and it's usually an arts program. So I think that every school must have a very full and rich program in uh, doing and and acting and. Uh, engaging in, in uh, creating videos, doing things with technology, but also going on stage, dramatizing, painting, all of the things involved in the arts, uh, doing, seeing, learning, and not taking mul- just multiple choice tests in uh, the arts, which is re- to me is ridiculous. Uh, but I, I believe that among the important subjects that are absolutely necessary in every school and that are being sacrificed because of the focus on testing would be history and civics, geography, uh, science, uh, obviously mathematics, because that's part of what's tested, but at a higher level than what the skill, what the tests now uh, depend on, uh, and foreign languages. And I could go on on physical education. There, there are districts that are not not just cutting back on physical education, but in some cases, I know in Florida, they give kids a DVD and say, "Go home and do your physical education in front of your home computer or your television." I mean, this is ridiculous. Children should have physical education on recess every day. Uh, they they should have wives, not just uh, turn them into. We're not Shanghai. We're not going to turn our kids into test taking machines. Not yet. Um, well, I would concur on the fullness of education. My kids are involved in music and in the arts, and it, I think it permeates into the other subjects too. Mm-hmm. It brings an interest into school. Uh, I do have a caller. Uh, Jamie from Monmouth County, you have a question for Dr. Ravitch or a comment? Yes, um, I had a question. Um, my question, Dr. Ravitch, is about the role of the billionaire in the United States right now. And I've been doing some research and I've determined there's about over 400 in the United States, pretty large chunk in the East Coast from Boston to Washington. And I've been studying how a group of them have created their own sort of organization together. Um, at risk of sounding slightly paranoid, 
I just am curious about the role of the billionaire in reform, and is this about reform or is it about collective bargaining? Um, well, it's a good question. Jamie, I'm going to put you on hold. You can listen to her answer. Thank you. Sure. It's a good question. We talked about this a little earlier on the podcast about um, chapter 10 of my book. It's called The Billionaire Boys Club. And uh, Forbes magazine just recently published a list of the richest people in the world and found that the U.S. has over 400 billionaires. Now, not all of them, fortunately, are involved in education reform or or what I call the corporate reform movement, but a number of them are. The the three biggest foundations, um, the Gates Foundation, the Broad Foundation, the Walton Foundation, are billionaire boys club leaders. Uh, What I discovered since my book appeared is that there's also a group called Democrats for Education Reform, and it's uh, the board of that um, of that particular organization includes a number of the billionaires, as well as the mayor of Newark, Cory Booker, um, and they're very deeply involved in corporate reform. And by, when, by corporate reform, I'm talking about trying to impose a business model on schools, uh, encouraging privatization, and also promoting a deep professionalization that anybody can become a teacher or principal or superintendent. Uh, there is a lot of money being pumped into corporate reform at this point. And part of it uh, is is definitely supporting an end to collective bargaining because the unions get in the way of the corporate reform movement. The corporate reform movement wants to impose um, all the things we've been talking about in this podcast, particularly uh, evaluating teachers by test scores uh, and, 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 and also charter schools. And unions generally are not very sympathetic because, first of all, the overwhelming majority of charter schools, I'm talking well over 90%, possibly 95% of charter schools are non-union. Their business model is one that relies on having teachers who work uh, very long hours. uh, And and they also like that they have a high turnover of teachers. The reason they have to have a high turnover because, first of all, it keeps their costs low. They, They may be paying the same as the local school district. But the teachers are working such incredible hours, you know, for a nine-hour day uh, working on Saturdays. They may end up working 50, 60, 70 hours a week and being available uh, by cell 24-7. And that works for them. Uh, they may have larger class sizes. Uh, they uh, may have bonus bonuses for higher test scores. They may do things that unions would find intolerable, and therefore it's important to the Billionaire Boys Club to undermine the unions and to get them out of the way. Okay, we have one more caller. But Jamie, I would tell you, I know you're still listening. Uh, you might as well buy her book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System. And the, there is a whole chapter dedicated to Dr. Ravitch's view on that. Uh, Tom, uh, from Warren County, you have a question on charter schools? Yes, I do. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ravitch. Um, I joined the podcast here about midway through, so if, I've, if, if, if my question is, was answered in the first half, my apologies for this, but I've been enjoying the conversation so far. Uh, I'm with a charter school in Warren County, and we are we find ourselves defending ourselves against some of the, the accusations about test scores and so forth that are sort of the blanket accusations across New Jersey charter schools, and it's it's disappointing to us. And what I'm looking for is the best way to to, to counter those arguments, distinguish ourselves, because we didn't set ourselves out to improve on the local test scores. The local test scores are actually quite fine. Our test scores are quite fine. We don't stand out, but we didn't intend to stand out in terms of test scores. What we intended to do was to follow through on the other part of the legislation around Jersey charter schools, which has to do with innovation in education, and to provide the same content, the same um, uh, standards, and the content standards, 
through a different lens, through a different uh, pattern, through a different kind of educational experience. And we feel we're doing quite uh, quite good at that job. Um, uh, and so okay. this, go ahead. That's, that's what I wanted to bring to uh, Yeah, because I'm getting towards the end. Uh, yeah, why don't you answer that? Because in your book, Dr. Ravis, you do talk about the, the history of all these issues, charter right. schools being one. And actually what Tom's talking about is the original concept behind them. Uh, as right. Well, you know, I sometimes get typecast as I'm a bitter enemy of charter schools. And, in fact, I'm not. I'm just a bitter enemy of what charter schools have turned into, and most of them are not like what Tom describes. Uh, I am a supporter of the original concept. The original concept of charter schools, uh, which was started in 1988, actually, and it came from Albert Shanker, who was then the president of the American Federation of Teachers, um, Shanker recognized that there were many children who were just totally turned off by schooling and who would be who would be lost and their lives would be harmed because they dropped out or they were about to drop out. And his idea was suppose a group of teachers were to get together and say to their colleagues, we would like to create a school, let's call it a charter, uh, where we would be freed of the usual rules and regulations, but we could reach out to the lowest performing kids We'll go out on the streets, we'll recruit the dropouts, we'll bring them back. We'll we'll identify the kids in school who are sitting in, in their classes with their head on their desk, are totally eyes glazed over, and are about to drop out. We'll take the, the hardest cases and see what we can do, what kinds of experiences, what kinds of experiential education, what kinds of innovative ideas, what can we do to help these kids regain their self-confidence and get re-engaged in education. That, I thought, was a brilliant concept. Um, it, however, has been taken over, and he turned against charter schools five years later in 1993 because he realized that what had happened was that the private sector saw the charter idea as a money-making idea. They saw it as an opportunity for entrepreneurship where uh, anybody or everybody could come in, open a charter, get government money, and uh, do uh, you know on the cheap education of drill and kill and line the kids up and um, do test prep endlessly and then say our scores are better than yours. That's what's happened. But I think the original concept is the right one. So that um, I just did a, a Q and A with North Star Academy in uh, Newark, where I said to them that I would love to see a, a charter s- school that went out for the toughest kids and never boasted about test scores and never boasted about anything because if you're running a good school, you don't boast. Boasting is for braggarts and, and for insecure people. You talk about how many lives you saved. You talk about the kids who would have otherwise been out on the street who you were able to bring back and, and, and get engaged again and and learning and about and making something better of their life than they would have other had. So I support the original concept. I, I absolutely think what's happening now, though, is about entrepreneurship, about making a profit, about people who pay themselves three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars to run a small charter school or a small charter chain, and a couple of other things that that I want to make sure I get in. New Jersey has a really terrific education system, and I was glad to hear you say, Tom, that your district uh, is is a good district because very few people in the state of New Jersey recognize, certainly Governor Christie doesn't, that if you look at the NAEP scores, which are not high-stakes tests, NAEP is the federal testing program, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and the highest-scoring state in the country is Massachusetts, and it's followed by Connecticut, New Jersey. So you're talking about a state that's in the top three out of 50, 
and uh, it's being characterized as being a failure by the governor. It's not a failure. It's a very high-performing state on no-stakes test. And I'm not against testing, by the way. I'm just in favor uh, of using testing as a diagnostic tool and not to hand out bonuses and punishments. Wow. Uh, we're actually coming to the end of our show. I'm glad you ended on the positive note, and I did want to mention that. From my, our perspective, uh, New Jersey is excellent, and this discussion is really driven by poverty education, which I don't, I'm not sure if anyone has any education answers. Uh, well, Dr. Ravitch, uh, any final comments? Yeah, my final comment is that uh, the big elephant in the room of education is poverty. And and if you were to uh, look at a group of test scores and rank them by uh, from top to bottom, you'd find that the most affluent kids have the highest scores and the poorest kids have the lowest scores. And yet the corporate reform movement re- refuses to recognize that poverty has a tremendous influence on academic achievement. And instead they say if you can just keep firing enough teachers, then everybody will be at the top. That is uh, delusional. And uh, it's also a way for the wealthiest people in America to evade their responsibility uh, for coming up with some creative ideas about how to help children and their families uh, live better lives because to the extent that we can reduce poverty, we will also simultaneously improve education. Okay, I hope that gives me five seconds to end the show. Uh, Dr. Ravitch, thank you, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Dr. Ravitch, thank you.